Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 174, The First Sermian Creed of 351. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, we're going to hear about yet another creed that was intended to replace the controversial language introduced at Nicaea in 325. In this first segment, I'm going to give you some historical background. It turns out that at this point in the story, what's going on in the rest of the world does make a difference to the development of doctrine. You'll recall that the council in 325 was called and presided over by the first Christian emperor, Constantine. Unbeknownst to him, in doing that, he was setting what would become a precedent in emperor's meddling in church affairs. And this would lead ultimately to the idea of an authoritative church-wide ecumenical council. That big idea wasn't on the radar at the time. In their minds, it was a synod. It was called to deal with a practical problem, not to be like a Supreme Court ruling that lasts forever and is a central determinant of what counts as Orthodox Christian belief. And there's one source that says that it was Constantine who suggested the word homoousios, same substance or essence. And at the time, he thought the right thing to do was to rule against Arius and his fellows. But a few years after the council, we find Constantine siding with the anti-Nicaea side and sending Athanasius into exile. At Nicaea, he'd banished Eusebius of Nicomedia, who had accepted the creed but refused to sign on to the damnations of Arius, etc., But within two years, he'd recalled his old friend Eusebius of Nicomedia, and he increasingly became Constantine's theological advisor. It was this Eusebius who baptized Constantine at the end of his life, when he felt he'd probably finished with sinning, and so it was safe to apply the one-time washing away of sin in the form of baptism. Historians still debate just how much of a Christian Constantine was, with his seeming interest in the traditional Roman sun god, Sol Invictus, the unconquered son. In any case, not too long after Nicaea, Constantine had shifted sides, and now he seemed to hold that Nicaea was too narrow, too divisive. So he continued with his policy of trying to religiously unify the Christians in his empire, but he switched to favoring various non-Nicene language. Historians have called this, I would say, not too accurately, his Arianizing policy. Constantine died in 337, And skipping over a few complications, basically the empire was divided between three of his sons. I've got a map on the blog post for this episode where you can see how it was divided up at this point. Constantine II got the western parts, territory that in our time includes Portugal, Spain, France, a little bit of North Africa, and most of the main island of Great Britain. Constans got Italy, about half of Roman North Africa, and a lot of the Balkans area. And then the third son, Constantius, had the eastern portion of the empire, which included Roman Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and what is now Turkey. Constantine II, the far western emperor, was influenced by western bishops to take the Nicene side of the dispute, and he freed Athanasius from his exile, sending him back to Alexandria. But Constantine II's career was short. He quarreled over territory with his younger brother, Constans, and he was killed in battle after invading Constans' territory in 340. Constans then ruled both of the western portions. 
He too took the Nicene side of the controversy, and it was Constance who called for the failed council at Sertica that I discussed in episode 115. He ruled the Western Empire from 337 until 350 when he was assassinated. With a reputation for sexual vice, cruelty, and unfairness, he lost the support of some of his troops who rebelled. A general named Magnentius stepped forward to be the new emperor. Constance had to flee for his life, but he was caught and killed after seeking refuge in a temple. This general Magnentius's rebellion only lasted about three years, though. In 353, as he was losing to the troops of Constantius, he committed suicide by falling on his own sword. Now, Constantius II was in charge of the whole Roman Empire, and he ruled the United Empire from 353 until 361. What kind of ruler was Constantius? He did issue a couple of decrees forbidding traditional pagan sacrifices, but these are thought to have had little effect. I don't think Christians were even a majority in the empire at this time. As with so many characters in this story, there's the partisan Nicene account, which was, as they say, written by the victors, and then there are the sober judgments of recent historians. According to the former, Constantius was a supervillain, a heretic, and a heartless and vicious persecutor of the faithful. Recent historian R.P.C. Hansen says that the ecclesiastical historians and writers generally in both ancient and modern times have branded him as a full-blooded Arian determined to persecute the pro-Nicene party out of existence and to stop at no atrocity in doing so. Certainly, Constantius II did use force on some occasions. However, Hansen says that on the whole, there is a fairly substantial body of evidence suggesting that Constantius was, by the standard of the late Roman emperors, tolerant and even at times merciful. Hansen then illustrates this feature of Constantius by describing how this emperor treated a certain Nicene bishop named Lucifer of Calaris. About this Lucifer, Hansen says, His works consist of almost no arguments in favor of the Nicene Creed, which he scarcely understands, but rather of one continued shrill monotone of abuse. Constantius is a murderer, an idolater, worse than the Jews, than the pagans, as bad as all the worst rulers in the Old and New Testaments. He is to be shunned as a heretic. He is not to be obeyed as a ruler. Hansen continues that Lucifer faintly realizes how unbecoming to his episcopal status it is to be occupied in such frenzied rantings at the emperor. No doubt you are saying in reply, the Lord wished you to be gentle because you are his bishop, and yet you are showing yourself consistently aggressive to me. But this passing thought is dismissed, and the violent Jeremiah continues. Yet in the face of such open defiance of his dignity and authority, and such blackening of his reputation, All that Constantius did to Lucifer was to exile him to various places in the Levant, forbidding him for a period to be visited by his friends, but permitting him the full use of his virulent pen. A mild martyrdom indeed. As to his character, Hansen notes that Constantius II was a devout man, and he concludes in the end that we must credit him with sincerely desiring the welfare both of the church and of the empire. But whether for the sake of peace and stability, or from theological convictions, or both, he was always on the non-Nicene side in one way or the other. When we return, the first Sirmian Creed from the year 351.
The location is Sirmium, a fairly important Roman city at the time in what is now Serbia. A council was held there in 351, convened by the Emperor Constantius, who was still in the process of putting down the rebellion of his general. One purpose of this meeting seems to have been to condemn, for the fifth time, the local bishop at Sirmium named Photinus. Evidently, Photinus was given the opportunity to defend himself in a major debate at this meeting. The later heresy hunter Epiphanius says this, Photinus says that Christ did not exist in the beginning, but that he has existed since Mary, from the time when the Holy Spirit came upon her and he was begotten of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, says he, like a bold architect and a heavenly measurer of things indescribable, is greater than Christ. Now Photinus was talkative by nature and glib of tongue, capable of deceiving many by his eloquence and readiness of speech. For despite having been often refuted by many people, he never stopped defending his teaching. Even after his speech of defense, which was given at that time at Sertica, when he was called by the bishops to give an account of the evil doctrine which he had proposed. In fact, he requested of the emperor Constantius, as though he had been deposed for no reason, that he might once again be given auditors in order to show that he had been deposed for no reason. Hence the emperor on that occasion dispatched as judges and auditors of his defense, which was to take place, the Lassius, Detianus, Cerealis, Taurus, Marcellinus, Evanthius, Olympius, and Leontius, with Basil of Ancyra putting the questions to him and contesting the responses which he would make in his defense or accepting them. And it was no minor debate which he held with Basil, but the inconsistent things he said in the debate were like the makeup of an immoral woman. They were similar in meaning to true doctrine but were conceived by him in a distorted way. But by reason of his deceptive speech and glibness which he used against him and the audience which was enticed by his language, the fine fellow boasted that he was prepared to present a hundred proof texts for his proposition. And in fact, with the auditors offering continuous rejoinders to what he said, he never stopped making his arguments. As we found in the debate with Basil, as taken down by the stenographers ordered to do so. One sealed volume was sent to the Emperor Constantius, one remained with Basil's alliance of bishops, and yet another was kept by the court officials and likewise sealed, as being the statements put forward which showed his true mind. Sadly, that document is lost. Wouldn't that be an interesting debate to listen in on? All we know is that in the eyes of the majority, Photinus lost, and he was deposed and sent into exile by Constantius II. What was the creed, then, that this body promulgated at this meeting? Well, it was yet another replay of what I called the Recycled Creed, the fourth creed from Antioch in 342 or maybe 341. I've already played that once since episode 114. I won't replay it again. If you want to hear that whole creed, you can go back to episode 114. It starts just after 16 minutes. But just to recap it, it starts off with belief in one God, the Father Almighty, when it goes on to the Son, it says he was begotten from the Father before all ages, calls him God from God, word, wisdom, true light, life, and other than that, it's pretty standard. Of course, what it pointedly leaves out are the claims that the Son was begotten of the Father's usia, that Father and Son are homoousion, same essence or same substance. And it doesn't say that the Son comes from the Father as true God from true God, which gives you, it looks like, two true gods but rather God from God. And the one God here is explicitly the Father himself. 
So it's a Unitarian creed in holding the one God to be the Father himself and not the Trinity. You can say it's a subordinationist creed, but, you know, just about everybody's a subordinationist in this period. It doesn't accentuate the difference between father and son, but it does pass by some chances to pound the table and insist on their absolute equality. Part of the reason I'm doing this series is I think we need to get a perspective on all of these developments of the 4th century. And some people who are very partisan in their theology are very eager to skip over these middle parts. For instance, the evangelical theologian Roger Olson, in his book, The Story of Christian Theology, 20 Centuries of Tradition and Reform, he talks about the dispute between Arius and Alexander. He talks about the Council of Nicaea. And then this is what he says about the whole flurry of councils in the decades after that. During the 50 years after the Council of Nicaea, several more ecumenical councils were called by emperors, but these were later denounced by emperors and church leaders alike because they were by and large anti-Trinitarian. Let me interrupt right there. That's a blatant anachronism. There weren't Trinitarians in this time, and so they couldn't have been anti-Trinitarian councils and creeds. Nor is that how any of them were understood at the time. But Olson continues, In other words, deciding which councils were authentic and authoritative parts of the great tradition of the church became a theological problem in its own right. It was not until 451 that a universal council at Chalcedon finally and definitively decided that the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, 381, had in fact been the first two truly ecumenical councils of the church, to the exclusion of several others. And that's about it. So he's not going to tell you that people forgot about Nicaea for more than a decade, and they just were going to pass by that language and leave it in the dust. He doesn't tell you that many people, and probably a majority of the bishops, thought that language was controversial and unclear and should be replaced. He doesn't tell you about all these councils offering better replacements for the Nicene Creed. Why? Because in 451, convened by another aggressive and meddling emperor, declared that the 325 and the 381 councils counted and the rest of them should just be dismissed. Well, wait, why should a Protestant think that? Why should any Christian think that? Olson then gives you a chapter on the stubborn heroism of Athanasius and then a chapter about how the Cappadocians solved all the problems. It's a very party-line narrative. There's a kind of distortion here that we have to beware of. When we look back through many centuries of history, we sort of think of 325 and 381 as being close together. But, you know, they're practically a lifetime apart. It's helpful to get the perspective of the people who are living through it, and not only the perspective of people who are looking back later and want to simplify what went on. From a later, purely partisan standpoint, this is a, quote, Arian council and, quote, Arian creed. But in the immediate aftermath of this, some people on the Nicene side were friendly to this council. As you'll see, it's not like these guys are defending Arius, or what you might call a more extreme type of subordinationist. It's just that they're not for the new Nicene language. It's a very mainstream creed in that way. It's not Arian, but also it's not pro-Nicene. What they added as new were 26 anathemas, they listed 26 damnable statements, which must neither be said nor taught nor believed. These are sort of randomly hurled at the reader, so 
Instead of going through them in order, I'm going to present them sorted by who they seem to be directed against. Let's start with the ones which seem to be directed against the Creed of Nicaea. That the Son of God, who is Christ before the ages, did not operate under the Father to create the universe. Well, that's interesting. That looks like a little jab against Nicaea, if Nicaea is understood to imply the absolute equality of the Father and Son, so that the Son is not under the Father. That the usia of God is extended or retracted. That the Son is the usia of God extended, or the extension of His usia. These look like they are guarded against how some people would read the Nicene Creed. There had been some speculations that God sort of oozed out part of his substance to form the sun. In fact, Tertullian's view is very similar to this. Tertullian explicitly says that the sun is composed of only a portion of the father's substance, and yet he says the father doesn't lose the substance when he shares it with the son. So he seems to think that there's no spatial break, but the divine substance, which he thinks is a kind of material substance, you know, kind of extends out like an amoeba sprouting a new arm. And now that arm part composes the sun, and yet it still belongs to the father as well. Usia could be understood in a material sense. And that was one reason of several why people were uncomfortable with it. That the father begot the son without willing it, for the father did not beget the son under compulsion, driven by some physical necessity against his will, but he achieved it by begetting him from himself as soon as he willed both timelessly and without suffering. That the son is ingenerate and unbeginning, so as to teach two unbeginning and ingenerate principles, and two gods. For the son is head and beginning of everything, and the head and beginning of Christ is God. And so, in an orthodox way, we attribute everything to a single, unoriginated beginning of the universe. The Nicene Creed didn't say anything about the Son being generated by will. This had been a theme in this idea of eternal generation going back to origin. He wanted to preserve God's freedom here. So these bishops are thinking if you admit that language about the Son being generated by will, you must think that it's not by will, so it was under compulsion, that God wasn't free in begetting him. Why the last statement that the Son is ingenerate? Well... Notice they emphasize here that the one God is supposed to be the ultimate source of everything, and in fact the ultimate source of Christ. And this is one thing that had been meant by saying that only the Father is true God. Again, going back to origin. So in saying the Son is true God from true God, they probably read that as implying that the Son does not come from the Father. You can't have two unique origins of everything else. You can't have two ultimate sources. So again, they reaffirm that God is over Jesus. God is his source and indeed his boss. In sum, these anathemas directed against the creed from Nicaea are against claims that its opponents feared that it implied. Now, did the drafters of the creed of Nicaea mean to imply all these things? I would say no, although you have to remember that there isn't any one thing that they meant. This was language of convenience adopted to kick out the Arians. They might have even picked the term homoousios just because the Arians didn't like it. They're firing these shots not because they know this is what the drafters of Nicaea meant, but rather because these are things that seem suggested to them by the language of Nicaea, and it's unclear what Nicaea meant.
Second, we have anti-Sibelian statements or anti-monarchian statements. That the ingenerate or a part of him was born of Mary. That the son existed only in the foreknowledge of the father before his birth from Mary, and he was not begotten from the father before the ages, and with God and all things were made by him. That the son is the immanent or preceding logos of God. That the son is only a man from Mary. That God and man who were from Mary is the ingenerate. If anyone interprets the text, I am God the first, and I am after those things, and apart from me there is no God, which applies to the destruction of idols and things which are not gods, as implying the destruction of the only begotten in the Jewish tradition. That accepting that the only begotten Son of God was crucified means that his Godhead endured corruption or suffering, or change or reduction or destruction. If anyone says that at Genesis 1, 26, let us make man, God was talking to himself, and not the father to the son. That Abraham did not see the son, but the ingenerate God or a part of him. That Jacob did not wrestle with the son in the guise of a man, but with the ingenerate God or a part of him. That Genesis 19.24, the Lord rained down fire from the Lord, is not to be applied to the father and the son, but he reigned from himself. In fact, the Lord the son reigned from the Lord the father. If anyone reading that the Father is Lord, and the Son Lord, and that the Father and Son are Lord, because he is Lord from Lord, says that there are two gods, we do not make the Son equal to the Father, but subordinated to the Father. And he did not come down to Sodom, Genesis 18.21, without the will of the Father, nor did he reign from himself, but from the Lord, that means at the command of the Father, nor does he sit at his own right hand, but he obeys since the Father says, Sit then at my right hand. Psalm 110, 1. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one person. That saying that the Holy Spirit is the Comforter means that he is the ingenerate God. If anyone does not say, as the law taught us, that the Comforter is other than the Son, for he said, The Father will send another, a Comforter, whom I will ask. John 14, 16. That the Holy Spirit is a part of the Father or of the Son. And again, carefully defining the concept of Christianity, if anyone denies that Christ God, Son of God, is before the ages and ministers to the Father for the creation of the world, but declares that he was born of Mary and thenceforward is called Christ and Son and took his beginnings from God, let him be anathema. These, it seems to me, lump together the alleged views of Photinus, bishop of the host city whom this council deposed, with the views of his teacher Marcellus, and also together with the second and third century monarchians, who were now a standard thing to mention in heresiology. What I think all of these had in common was that they denied logos theories. They denied that the word of John 1 is the same self or the same person as the man Jesus. The eternal word, which is God, was, in their view, either not a self, or it was the same self as the Father. They also denied the, at this time, majority view that it was really this word and not God himself who did all that's attributed to God or to Yahweh in the Old Testament. On the strategy of exegesis, or rather eisegesis, names like God and Yahweh are ambiguous. Hence their insistence that Genesis 19.24 mentions two different beings, 
God and the pre-human Jesus, or the eternal word. I've argued that this is a misreading, as is the whole projection of the three persons of the Trinity back in Genesis 18. This is way back in podcast 18, where I critique a current-day apologist who trots out this traditional misreading. Did any of these really collapse the Father and Son, saying that they're the same being? Probably not Photinus or Marcellus, or even most of the older Monarchians, although likely a few did, because this claim comes up over and over in older material. One of the most intriguing things about this, of course, is that it's clear that they understood Photinus to be denying that Christ pre-existed his miraculous conception. And it seems clear that, again, he's not on the bus with the Logos theory. He doesn't think that there's this eternal word who's a divine person who then assumed a human nature or maybe assumed a man. He thinks that God's word, whatever that was, was in some sense in this unique man. Well, that's what people who accept what in the 20th century was called a spirit Christology say. And that's what people who we call biblical Unitarians think now. So in the future, we need to look into this issue of Photinus and how similar is he to later Unitarians. And before we pass this section by, we shouldn't forget the part where they say you cannot say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one person. Sorry, Latter-day Oneself Trinitarians. People like Karl Barth and Karl Rahner think exactly that. They think there's one person that is one self there. These 4th century bishops are damning that position. It's clear that they understand persons to be beings. Of course, that's what our concept of a self is. Bart and Rahner suggest replacing terms to get translated as person because they don't want to suggest that there are three beings here, that there are three selves. They want to switch to three modes of being or something like that. It's interesting that these mid-4th century Catholic bishops are condemning what seemingly is the same thing as what I call oneself Trinitarians in these latter days. Third, we have a group of anathemas which seem to be directed at what we could call extreme subordinationist theologies. They repeat the anti-Arius anathemas that are part of the creed that they're recycling here, the creed from about 10 years before. But those who say that the Son was from nothing, or from other subsistence, and not from God, and there was time when he was not, the Catholic Church regards as aliens. As to the alleged teachings of Arius himself, then, they simply agree with Nicaea. You can see, then, how it's just wrong to call this an Arian council or an Arian creed. At this point, Arius is long dead and gone and they're willing to go along with the Nicene Creed about what he allegedly taught. But they go on to add some extra anathemas against other views that you might call extreme subordinationist. That the Father and Son are two gods. If anyone interprets the text, the Word became flesh, John 1.14, so as to mean that the Logos was converted into flesh, or in taking flesh, suffered change that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three gods. That the Son of God came into existence by the will of God like one of the things made. So particularly in that last statement, they are agreeing with the Nicenes that the Son is not a creature like other creatures. He doesn't share the same type of origin that they did. 
They're just insisting that there's a big difference, an important difference between being eternally generated by God's will and having been freely created. Also, they want to head off any assertion that it was God alone who created. You have to have the Son in there who's really doing the work. That's the Logos theory of the day. And if a subordinationist suggests that the Logos can change, well, they want to deny that. Logos is divine, so can't change. And so, therefore, it can't have changed in becoming flesh. When the Trinity's podcast returns, where's the monotheism? This creed, even though it's subordinationist, is mysterious when it comes to the topic of monotheism. It starts off with a traditional statement that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Okay, so right, the Father's the one God. And yet they proceed to describe Jesus as God from God. And he's begotten, whereas the Father is not, so they're not the same being. The Son derives his existence from the Father. Well, but if the Son is a different being than the Father, and yet he's God, does that make two gods or not? It sounds like two gods. So their first new anathema here, they say you can't say the Father and Son are two gods. Well, why can't you say that? I mean, why hasn't it been implied that they're two gods? And they seem to sense that they have a problem here, because it comes up again later in the set of anathemas. If anyone reading that the Father is Lord, and the Son Lord, and that the Father and Son are Lord, because he is Lord from Lord, says that there are two gods, we do not make the Son equal to the Father, but subordinated to the Father. And he did not come down to Sodom, Genesis 18.21, without the will of the Father, nor did he reign from himself, but from the Lord, that means at the command of the Father. So their reading of that passage is that there are two there who are referred to as Lord, as Yahweh, one on earth and one in heaven. Two different lords, then aren't they two different gods? They say, no, you can't say that. And then they point out that they make the Son subordinate to the Father. He takes orders from the Father. Okay, good, but why isn't it a greater and a lesser God then? How is the subordinationist element, in their view, relevant to this issue of how many gods there are? The point would seem to be that it's only the unoriginated one, only the one who doesn't take orders, that's truly God, or God in the highest sense. And toward the end, they say you can't say that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three gods. And at the very end, they imply that Christ is God, which is to say, Son of God. So it is arguably monotheism, even though they apply the word God to the Son. It seems clear they're applying it in a different and lesser sense. They're saying that he's like God to an extreme, maybe to a unique degree, but they're not giving him exactly the same status as God. So I think they're implying that there's one true God, the Father, and then there's this one called God, but that's not to say he's the same being as the true God. This approach to monotheism is interestingly contrasted with the approach of a famous pro-Nicene theologian writing just a few years after this council. This is Hilary, Bishop of Poitiers, a Western bishop writing in Latin. People respect his writings because he's fairly learned, even though he's called the Western Athanasius. 
They call him the Western Athanasius because he is very strident and very partisan, and his career is just one of unrelentingly pursuing a dogged defense of the Nicene Creed. But he's not unhinged like Athanasius. In the year 359, Hilary wrote a book called De Synodis, or On the Councils. This is an account of a bunch of Eastern creeds by a not-too-sympathetic Westerner. He thinks the Easterners have a lot more problems with heresy, because they're not friendly to Nicaea like he is. And he reports on this first Sirmian Creed. He gives us the text of it in Latin. And then he goes through and he comments on a lot of the anathemas. And what caught my eye was his different approach to monotheism. Unlike them, he's not a subordinationist. He wants to say that father and son are the same usia. Let's see what he means by that. In section 42, commenting on his own Nicene views, he says this, We predicate one name for the essence of each. That is, we predicate one God on account of the exactly similar substance of the undivided nature in each person. Later, in section 51, Hillary says this, God is one on account of the true character of his natural essence, and because from the unborn God the Father, who is the one God, the only begotten God, the Son, is born, and draws his divine being only from God. And since the essence of him who is begotten is exactly similar to the essence of him who begat him, there must be one name for the exact similar nature. That the Son is not on a level with the Father and is not equal to Him is chiefly shown in the fact that He was subjected to Him to render obedience, in that the Lord reigned from the Lord, and that the Father did not, as Photinus and Sibelius say, reign from Himself as the Lord from the Lord, in that He sat down at the right hand of God when it was told Him to seat Himself, in that He is sent, in that He receives, in that He submits in all things to the will of Him who sent Him. But the subordination of filial love is not a diminution of essence, nor does pious duty cause a degeneration of nature, since in spite of the fact that both the unborn Father is God and the only begotten Son of God is God, God is nevertheless one, and the subjection and dignity of the Son are both taught in that by being called Son he is made subject to that name, which because it implies that God is his Father is yet a name which denotes his nature. Having a name which belongs to him whose Son he is, He is subject to the Father both in service and name, yet in such a way that the subordination of his name bears witness to the true character of his natural and exactly similar essence. In section 56, he repeats their anathema that says, If any man says that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are three gods, let him be anathema. Hilary adds, Since it is contrary to religion to say that there are two gods, because we remember and declare that nowhere has it been affirmed that there is more than one God. How much more worthy of condemnation is it to name three gods in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Nevertheless, since heretics say this, Catholics rightly condemn it. Later in section 64, he adds, We confess and write of our own will that there are not two gods, but one God. Nor do we therefore deny that the Son of God is also God, for he is God of God. We deny that there are two incapable of birth because God is one through the prerogative of being incapable of birth. Nor does it follow that the unbegotten is not God, for his source is the unborn substance. There is not one subsistent person, but a similar substance in both persons. There is not one name of God applied to dissimilar natures, but a wholly similar essence belonging to one name and nature. 
One is not superior to the other on account of the kind of his substance, but one is subject to the other because born of the other. The father is greater because he is father. The son is not less because he is the son. We recognize that their nature is mutual and similar because equal. We do not think them to be one person because they are one. We declare that they are, through the similarity of an identical nature, one, in such a way that they nevertheless are not one person. Later on in section 73, he says, He is like the Father. He is the Son of the Father. He is born of Him. This fact alone justifies the assertion that they are one. So Hillary twists and turns around this issue of monotheism. He senses that there is a problem here, and so he keeps coming back to it. And his answer is none too clear. But I'm going to take a stab at interpreting what his position is. His big point, as an Nicene, is insisting that father and son share the same usia. What is an usia? Well, he doesn't think it's material that they share. It's not a stuff that composes both of them. Forget about that. Does it mean what Aristotle calls first usia, which is a being, an entity? No, he doesn't think they're the same being at all. He thinks one is caused to exist by the other one eternally. He thinks one serves and one commands. Now, if you're a later Trinitarian, it's tempting to try to cram him into the mold of the Athanasian Creed or current-day relative identity theory and read him to be saying that the Father and Son are the same being but different persons. He doesn't say that, though. In fact, he seems to grant that the Father is more ultimate. He's not going to accentuate the subordination of the Son. He just thinks that being the ultimate source doesn't come into this question of essence or substance. It's pretty clear from his examples that what he means in saying that Father and Son are homoousios is that they share a generic essence. He gives the example of human offspring, for instance. His point, in the end, I read as a verbal point. It's that you're not to say that Father and Son are one God. Why? Because they're so closely related, they're so similar, and because the Son comes from the Father. Well, that's an odd sort of rule, isn't it? The objector was probably wondering about why there is only one God. The non-Nicene has an answer to this that's clear enough that only the Father is the one true God. The Son is called God, but is somewhat lesser in greatness, and so they decline to call him true God. In contrast to this, instead of a clearly monotheistic theology, Hillary simply orders us to say about the Father and the Son the words, quote, one God, end quote, and he forbids us from saying, quote, two gods, end quote. But were we asking about monotheism, or were we asking about which words are naughty and which words are required? When you think about it, this is a really disappointing and unsatisfying answer, but it's one that goes a long way back. All of this reminds me of a long-lost work of origin. This was rediscovered only in 1941, and it seems to be a document from a synod that was called because of a certain monarchy named Heraclides. Origen was called in as a kind of expert witness and debates the guy, and we have this short transcript of it. It's called Dialogue with Heraclides. Now, Origen doesn't have exactly the same rules. At one point, he says, We do not hesitate to speak in one sense of two gods and in another sense of one god. 
and a little bit on, Origen adds this. But since our brothers are shocked at the statement that there are two gods, we must treat this matter carefully and point out in what respect they are two, and in what respect these two are one god. All right, so he's going to address the monotheism question in some way. Although, is he going to show how they're one god, or is he going to show how they're, quote, one god? Do you see the difference? Origen continues. Now, the Holy Scriptures have taught many instances of two being one and not just two, but in some cases they have taught us that more than two and even a greater number are one. Our task here is not to take up this problem just to pass it over quickly, but for the sake of the more simple to chew on it like meat and instill the doctrine little by little in the ears of our hearers. There are then many things which are two that are said in the Scriptures to be one. What Scripture passages? Adam and his wife are distinct beings. Adam is distinct from his wife, and his wife is distinct from her husband. But it is said right in the creation account that the two are one. For the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 and Matthew 19.5 It is thus possible at times for two to be one flesh. But note well that in the case of Adam and Eve, it is not said that they will be two in one spirit, nor that they will be two in one soul, but that they will be two in one flesh. In addition, the just person, while distinct from Christ, is said by the Apostle to be one in relation to Christ. For whoever is united to the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But is not one of these a lower or diminished and inferior nature, while Christ is of a more divine and glorious and blessed nature? Are they therefore no longer two? Yes, for the man and the woman are no longer two, but one flesh. Matthew 19.6, and the just person and Christ are one spirit. Thus, our Savior and Lord, in relation to the Father and God of all, is not one flesh and one spirit, but something that is above flesh and spirit, one God. For when human beings are joined to each other, the appropriate word is flesh. And when a just person is united to Christ, the word spirit. And when Christ is united to the Father, the word is not flesh or spirit, the more prestigious word, God. That is why we understand, I and the Father are one, John 10.30, in this sense. In some of our prayers we maintain the duality, and in others we introduce the unity, and thus we do not fall into the opinion of those who, cut off from the church, have fallen prey to the illusory notion of unicity, monarchias abrogating the Son as distinct from the Father, and also, in effect, abrogating the Father, nor do we fall into the other impious doctrine which denies the divinity of Christ. What, then, is the meaning of such sacred texts as, Before me no other God was formed, nor shall there be any other after me? Isaiah 43.10 And the text, I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. Deuteronomy 32.39 In these texts, one is not to think that the unity refers to the God of the universe in his purity, as the heretics would say, apart from Christ, nor that it refers to Christ apart from God, but we say that it is just as Jesus expresses it, I and the Father are one. John 10.30 A God is a divine being. Origen's aware that he believes in two divine beings, the Father and the Son. However, he wants to say that one God, that phrase, can be said of them. That's his point. Just as husband and wife can be called one flesh, 
So the Word and the God whose Word he is can be referred to as one God. And then he insists that we have to read the monotheistic statements as using the term God to refer to the two of them together, which I think is a patent misreading. But there's your verbal solution to monotheism. Oh yeah, we've got two gods, but you don't say that. You say one God because the two gods are extremely close. They're very similar because one eternally comes from the other. Origen didn't need to say that. He was a subordinationist himself. And in other places, he makes pretty clear that the Father is divine in a way that nothing else is. But I won't go into it here. I think this strange habit of enforcing monotheistic style of expression is probably a key step in the development of truly Trinitarian doctrine. The Trinitarian is someone who identifies the one God as the Trinity. The Unitarian is someone who identifies the one God as the Father alone. But you can be a Unitarian who thinks that the one God is the Father, and yet because Father, Son, and Spirit you think share an usia, now you think it's appropriate to refer to all of them as, quote, one God. You can do it with the Father and Son, or you can do it with all three of them. You see something similar in Apollinaris of Laodicea, who lived from around 315 to 392, a politically powerful bishop and a very active pro-Nicene in the controversy. This is the guy who notoriously denies that Christ has a human soul. He thinks the word takes the place of the human soul. He has what some have called a word body Christology. And we have only fragments of his writings. In one of these, he says the following, and this looks like a statement of his own faith. He says, There is one God, the Father, the only deity, and the Son is also God, truly being the image of the one and only deity, according to his generation and nature which he has from the Father. And yet in another fragment he says this, We confess the Son and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial with the Father, and the essence of the triad is one. That is, there is one deity. The Father is by nature unbegotten, the Son is begotten from the Father by a true begetting and not a making from the will, and the Spirit, sanctifier of the entire creation, is eternally breathed out from the essence of the Father through the Son. I read this as saying that there are three different beings there. However, those three beings share an essence. And because of that, they are, quote, one deity. Why do I say that? Because he explicitly says that the one God is the Father and that the Father is the only deity. The next step, and I don't know whether or not Apollinaris ever made it, is to just say, yeah, the deity is the three of them together, the Trinity. In other words, you just take away the quotation marks, so to speak. The triad are not only, quote, one God, but also the one God just is that triad. We don't just refer to them as one God or as one deity because they're so doggone close and so doggone similar. Yeah, actually, we call them one God because they're one God. Maybe that's how you make the transition from being a Unitarian who accepts the Nicene Creed to being a Trinitarian who accepts the Nicene Creed. Next time on the Trinity's podcast, who was this guy, Marcellus of Ancyra, who was at Nicaea in 325 and was for some time friendly with Athanasius, like Athanasius being a fierce anti-Arian? How does Marcellus end up being condemned by several Eastern councils? 
The Westerners who assembled at the aborted council at Sertica exonerated Marcellus' teaching as orthodox. And yet here, in the 351 council we just heard, Marcellus is roundly condemned. So for some years, the Catholic mainstream had a hard time agreeing about whether this guy was a heretic or not. In the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll take a crack at sorting things out. This week's thinking music has been Watching from Red Hill by Art of Escapism. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.